Luke chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 17 to 26. I've entitled it, Authority to Forgive Sins. I thought of other titles, Raise the Roof, Through the Roof, uh, but I ended on kind of a more vanilla, descriptive uh, title for this, Authority to Forgive Sins. This is one of my favorites. It's such a great, great story. And I just can't help but think that the disciples just love to tell these stories about Jesus. I mean, you have your stories about you and your friends and growing up, and you go back to those well-worn stories that just make you... uh, find fascination or laughter, and I just can't help but think those who got to witness these just had such joy retelling these stories over and over again. So let's read this uh, just really incredible account. And three of the gospel writers tell us this account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so you know what it's like when you've got a good story, you want to be the one that gets to tell it. And so they all tell it, and they all have different emphases that they make in their telling of it, different details that are more important to them, just like when you would tell a story and a friend would tell it, and maybe they will highlight something else that you might not, and, uh, but you bring them all together and you get the fullness of it, which hopefully we'll be able to do as we study this passage. So uh, without further ado, let's read the text in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof And let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. An amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Johnny Erickson Tata writes this, quote, For as long as I can remember, I was into sports. Whether racking up swimming medals, slamming a tennis ball with my wicked backhand, or being voted best athlete in my senior class, I had found my niche, my life. I was an athlete. And it defined everything about me, even the major I planned on declaring in college. But athleticism can push a person too far. Only a month after high school graduation, I broke my neck while attempting an inward pike dive off a raft in the shallows of the Chesapeake Bay. I had assumed I could pull out of the pike in time. But when my head crunched against the sandy bottom, my arms and legs went limp. When they pulled my paralyzed body on shore, I kept thinking, what a stupid dive. Why did I do it? Months later, when the permanency of my paralysis began to sink in, I felt my life was over. I was a Christian back then, but life in Christ didn't define who I was. True, I understood I was a new creation with a new heart, at least in theory, but I didn't live like it. 
So after my accident, I dug into my Bible for help, hoping that Jesus would give me back all that I'd lost. I wanted, I needed my body back. I scoured God's word for any reference of Jesus healing paralyzed people. One passage caught my attention, Luke 5. She goes on to say, I ignored verses 20 to 24 in which Jesus teaches that forgiving sin is a lot harder to do than healing someone. I didn't care about that, he- that teaching. Forget the sin part. I just wanted the healing part. As far as I was concerned, if I kept my nose clean and stayed out of trouble, Jesus would have no reason not to heal me. And so I made the rounds at local healing services, following every scriptural injunction that might qualify me for physical healing. Elders prayed and anointed me with oil, and I confessed more sins than I could recall. But after two visits to Catherine Kuhlman's healing crusades, the Benny Hinn of her day, I plummeted, uh, plummeted into despair. My arms and legs remained unresponsive. Didn't God know I was lost without limbs that worked? Didn't he understand I was a strong athlete on the inside? Surely he knew I was the least likely candidate to enjoy life in a wheelchair. After the third healing crusade, my sister drove me home to our Maryland farm. All the way, I kept fuming. What kind of savior, what kind of rescuer or healer would rescue the prayer, would refuse the prayer of a paralytic? Especially a paralytic who claims Christ as her savior. I felt bewildered and utterly lost. One morning, I awoke early, looked around my shadowy bedroom, and decided I didn't want to get up. If I can't be healed, I thought, then I'm just not going to do this. I'm not going to live this way. I stayed in bed that day and the next and the following week. The despair was claustrophobic. And I finally whimpered, I can't live this way. I'm so lost. God, show me how to live. It was the first plea for help. Next came fresh days when my sister would get me up, plop a Bible on a music stand and park my wheelchair in front of it. With a mouth sick, I would flip this way and that, trying to make sense of it all. I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't his ultimate focus. He cares deeply about those things, but they're symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions as he grows our love for him. I reread Luke 5, where Jesus healed the paralyzed man lowered by his friends through the roof. This time, I studied the verses I had ignored. Jesus could heal the paralyzed man because and only because he had authority as the Son of God to forgive sin. I collapsed in tears when I began to glimpse how heinous my sin was. Physical healing paled in comparison to the unthinkable abuse my transgressions heaped on my Lord. She goes on and says, does God miraculously heal? Sure, he does. But in this broken world, it's the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. It's all to the praise of deeper healing in Christ. Wow. I like to read Johnny Erickson Tata whenever I'm prone to complain. (laughs) Uh, And I just see her incredible faith. She has uh, been in a wheelchair for over 55 years. She's had three or maybe four battles with cancer. Uh, she has chronic pain as well, which seems, uh, seems at odds with being a paraplegic, but she has chronic pain, uh, just a number of other areas of suffering, and yet she has continued to be a, uh, a humble example of enduring suffering while finding joy in Christ. But she points out something that's very significant in Luke 5, that the part that she read over, but kind of didn't pay attention to was actually the main part that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. That while this man came for a healing of his physical body, which ultimately he did receive, Jesus's primary focus was to meet his greatest need, the need of forgiveness of his sins. 
And that's really the greatest need all of us have. Uh, Beyond anything else, it is to have your sins cleansed, forgiven, dealt with, put away. And that is what Luke directs our attention to in our passage. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's been showing us, Luke has, Jesus' authority in different areas. And here he shows us Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Jesus' authority to forgive sins. And thus meet all of our greatest needs. What I want us to see here in this passage that highlights forgiveness are four lessons about divine forgiveness to delight your hearts in Christ. Four lessons about divine forgiveness to delight your hearts in Christ. First, we want to see the prerequisite of divine forgiveness. The prerequisite of divine forgiveness in verses 17 to 19. Look there again at verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. We're back on the north shore of Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, in the city of Capernaum, we're told, by uh, another gospel writer. And we uh, encounter now these individuals, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Uh, So here we we see them coming, and really, it's helpful to understand some of these groups, and we'll get into them more. I don't want to spend too too much time now, but since Luke is introducing the Pharisees here, uh, there's really four major religious groups uh, in Israel in the first century. There's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, right? So here's kind of a general rundown of these. The the Pharisees are kind of uh, popular with the common man. They are enforcers of the law of Moses and teachers of the law of Moses. And so they uh, are, and and these these scribes or teachers of the law, sometimes they're called lawyers, are kind of a subset of the Pharisees. Uh, They're experts in interpreting and applying the law of God. Now, of course, we think of the Pharisees and immediately our, uh, our, you know, our antenna goes up and we, we, we think of them as hypocrites. But these are the very popular religious teachers and leaders of the day. Very well respected. They were conservative and uh, they were concerned greatly about righteousness. They created a lot of laws um, o- over many years to fence the, the actual law of God. They were probably developed sometime um, in kind of the intertestamental period. And uh, when the synagogues became to be, be popular. And so they're conservative. Uh, then you have the Sadducees, and they're kind of the upper class. They're the aristocrats, and they are liberal. They are also anti-supernatural. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in a resurrection. In fact, they only really believe the first five books of Moses. And the rest they see as oral tradition, but really not on the level of the first five. And so not as popular with the main people, but the upper kind of ruling class. Then you have the Essenes, who are kind of the monastics of the day. And they separated themselves from society in the desert. And so sometimes you hear of Qumran or where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's kind of where you would find some of these people, the Essenes, kind of separating themselves from society. And then, of course, you have the Zealots, who are kind of the opposite, uh, where they are radical terrorists. I mean, they, are, they would go into a big crowd where they hated the Romans and they would have uh, short daggers that they would hide away in their cloak. And then when a moment was right in a crowd, they would stab and they would knife a Roman soldier or official and then they would sneak away. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> so these were radicals. And so you have these groups that are kind of present during this day. And, and here Luke highlights one of them for us, the, the popular religious leaders and teachers, popular among the people, conservative religiously, careful students of the word of God. And here they come to hear Jesus. Authority, uh, word has reached them. And they're coming from all over Israel. Luke is highlighting that for us, that Jesus is so popular that they have to hear his word. They're drawn to him. And Luke also highlights Jesus' power to heal in this verse, that the power of the Lord is with him to heal. And of course, he's doing that. But it's, 
It's really a means to an end. His healing is a means to get a hearing, and so he's teaching, and that's the focus of the text here. He's, he's um, Pharisees, teachers of the law, were, were sitting there, and, and he was teaching. He was teaching. And we learn, if we've jumped into verse 18, we learn that, there, that there's so many crowds, the common people are there, they're curious, because the house is so packed out that you can't even get to the door. There's so many people here. And so Jesus is teaching. And then we see an interruption. <laughs> Verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And here's some great friends. I don't know if you have great friends, but here are some great friends. These four guys. They bring their friend to where Jesus is. And this is a fun story to put yourself in the place of each of the different characters at different points, right? You have the guy who's paralyzed and he's sitting at home and he can't do anything. He's not even sitting probably. He's lying at home and, and his friends burst in the door. Hey, Jesus is in town. He's at this house. We got to go now. And so what does he do? Okay. You know, uh, and, and then the friends though, they hear, and they're like, we got to bring our buddy, you know, Jacob, I'm just giving him a name, whatever. We got to bring him there. And, and, and so they go, they barge into his house, they grab him, they're carrying him and they get to the house and it, it, they're too late. I mean, you, you show up late and, and it's just, there's the front seats are taken, right? And, and it, you can't even get into the house anymore. There's such a crowd. What are we going to do here? We're too late. Now, when you think of bed, don't think of a twin bed, uh, <laughs> a massive bed. Think of like a, a pallet or a mat, uh, just a small cot that could be carried. I kind of was thinking a little bit, even this morning, of like a, in the military, they put a guy in like a little cot and they carry him. And so it's something that one person could carry, uh, but something a man could lay on and be carried by others. And that's this idea. But but these guys have uh, a no-quitting spirit. Though they can't get in, you know, I think of like pushing a double stroller through a big crowd and you're trying to make it right. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I mean, they've got this guy on this cot they're carrying, and, but they're not giving up. Now, well, let's try again another time. One of them hits an idea. And so, verse 19, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. <laughs> You're like, what? Now, don't think of what most of your roofs look like. I don't even want to get on my roof. It's such a pitched uh, angle that uh, I'm afraid I'm going to fall off. Uh, and so this is more like a flat roof. And it, it wasn't uncommon during this time to have a, a deck on the top of your roof and where you could sit, you could relax, you could enjoy the evening there. And sometimes there was even a, a stairwell that was external to the house where, by which you could get up onto the roof and you could get on the roof and, and sit out there. And so that's likely the situation uh, as we come to this passage and, and we see these men going up on the roof. They go, hey, I've got an idea. So they go up on the roof and these, these roofs would likely have timber laid uh, as kind of a base and then thatch uh, on, on top of that. And then probably some mud that was hardened to fill in gaps. And then maybe even some tiles on top of that to finish it all off to be the surface that you would set stuff on and, and sit on. And so they get up there and they begin working on the roof, removing parts and so Luke kind of describes it and he skips over some of their hard work because it says they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so if you don't have some of the other gospel writers, you might be thinking, how does this work? Was there already a hole there? What, what's going on? If you look at the other writers, they highlight the details of what's going on, that they were actually digging through the roof. And so they, they first start to remove the tiles and then dig through the, the hardened mud and then the thatch. And they're just pulling away at the roof and making a hole. I mean, these guys are crazy. <laughs> they're industrious, though. And so they're, they're just digging. They're working hard. They also rig something up to lower their friend down on the mat. And like I said, it's fun to picture yourself in different uh, 
people's shoes during this story because you go now, go inside, all right? And people are listening to Jesus. They're hanging on every word. And you're sitting there. And then all of a sudden, you just start to hear like, boom, 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 boom. And then like, you start to hear banging on the roof, you know, boom, boom. And you're like, is anyone else seeing that? And you're like kind of looking around and things start to get louder and louder. And then like dust starts to fall on Jesus. And you're like, did Jesus stop teaching? Did he keep teaching? What, what went on in this in this house. Now, I have to think these guys probably work pretty fast. I mean, it doesn't tell us that, but I mean, if something's going on on the roof, one of you guys is going to go up there and check it out, you know, see what's happening, especially when stuff starts falling. Like, all right, Robert, he keeps going. Nothing's going to stop him, but, but we got to check this out. The security team is going to get on it. And, and so, but they are removing, all of a sudden, stuff's falling down, debris, and then light bursts through, a little crack, and so everyone's looking now, and then it moves fast at this point, and just pieces are being removed, and there's a big hole. And then all of a sudden, you see four heads, you know, looking down at you. And they're all looking down, and then you see it all goes black. And then, again, light pouring through as this guy is now being lowered down on his cot. And slowly, you know, it's like, you know, you got four guys, maybe they're each holding a rope. So like one guy's going too fast and he's like going, and I mean, this is a trusting friend. I mean, he's not going to slide off over here like, hey, come on, you know, and he pulls it up a little bit and then they lower it. And so they're trying to work together here, lowering it down. And I mean, can you imagine this scene? We just tiles are getting removed here and we do have tiles. So not those kind, but uh, they're lowering him down. And just what a sight this must have been. What an incredible, unexpected sight. Now, why do I call this the prerequisite for divine forgiveness? Well, because what does everything orbit around in these first couple verses? It really orbits around people getting to Jesus. The Pharisees want to get to Jesus and hear him. The common people are curious and they're crowding in to get near to Jesus. And these men have heard about Jesus, and they need to get their friend to Jesus. Everything is orbiting around Jesus and getting to him. The prerequisite for divine forgiveness is getting to Jesus. Now, to be sure, in most every case here, it's unlikely that they're seeking forgiveness. Now, some in the crowd may have been if they'd heard his message already, but they are probably either curious or they're critics like the Pharisees, or they're like these men who are not looking for forgiveness, but probably just looking for healing. And nevertheless, despite the different ways people get to Jesus and hear about Jesus, what they end up hearing when they get to Jesus is the message about forgiveness. It says that Jesus was teaching them. Now, what do you think he was teaching them? Well, it doesn't tell us in this passage, but if we go on what he teaches elsewhere, he's teaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Likely he's teaching the message of forgiveness and being right with God. And so when you get to Jesus, you hear the message of Jesus, which is how you might be forgiven. What does it mean today to get to Jesus and receive divine forgiveness? Well, it means hearing about Jesus and his message from the scriptures. I mean, we can't go somewhere physically to be near Jesus, but we can hear his word. We can hear his teaching and his message of forgiveness. We have the same message that Jesus taught you cannot be forgiven in any other way. And so only by hearing and embracing the good news about Christ can one's sins be forgiven. And as a side note here, it's not hard to see that a good friend gets others to Christ by any means necessary. What a lesson on bringing people to Jesus and the lengths that true friends will, get, will go to to bring their friends to Jesus. And so the prerequisite for divine forgiveness is getting near to Jesus, is getting to Jesus. Get people to Christ. Get them there by telling them the word so that they can hear the message. Now, here this man is now lying on the ground, having been lowered there. And all eyes are on this man who's been lowered down and they're now looking upon him 
except his eyes are looking up. They're looking up at Jesus, or he's looking up at Jesus. And in his peripheral vision, he can see his four friends poking their heads down, trying to see what's going to happen next. And so there he is, lying on the ground, unable to do a thing. All he can do is look up at Jesus. That's all this guy can do, laying there on the ground. All he can do is look at Christ. And what happens next is so unexpected. And Jesus is often so unguessable, which I know we, we, we've read these gospels before, many of us, and we, we, we know these stories, and so we're used to them. But when you read these with a fresh eye, you think, I would have never guessed that that was going to happen next. And so here we see now the pro- proclamation of divine forgiveness. We saw the prerequisite of divine forgiveness. Now the proclamation of divine forgiveness in verse 20. Look there. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And this is not what anyone would expect at this moment. I mean, maybe you would expect him to say, what are you guys doing? <laughs> or it, it maybe if you're tuned into what Jesus has been doing, that he has the power to heal, that he would tell him to get up at that, that point. Maybe he would heal him there. But nobody is thinking he's going to say, your sins are forgiven you. He doesn't heal the man. He forgives the man. Now, he has a significant physical need, but Jesus knows he has a far more significant spiritual need. He sees beyond the presenting issue. And sometimes you try to help someone and they tell you their issue, their problem, and it's what I call the presenting issue. Because it's not always the main issue. It's what they perceive to be the main issue, but it may not be the main thing. And so Jesus sees all through that. And he sees what the deepest need is in this man. And he addresses that first. Forgiveness first. Here's something Dr. Luke could appreciate as a doctor. This man describing this story. Another doctor turned preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, talks about why he left the medical profession to become a pastor. He got this question all the time. He had a very promising future in medicine. He says this, quote, when I came here, that is to pastor, people said to me, why give up good work, a good profession? After all, the medical profession, why give that up? If you had been a bookie, for instance, and wanted to give that up to preach the gospel, we should understand and agree with you and say that you were doing a grand thing. Medicine, a good profession, healing the sick and relieving pain. One man even said this, if you were a solicitor and give it up, I'd give you a pat on the back. But to give up medicine? Ah, well, I felt like saying to them, if you knew more about the work of a doctor, you would understand. We but spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. I saw men on their sick beds. I spoke to them of their immortal souls. They promised grand things. Then they got better, and back they went to their old sin. I saw I was helping these men to sin, and I decided that I would do no more of it. I want to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is all right, he is all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a diseased soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face eternity of hell. Ah, yes. We have sometimes to give up those things which are good for that which is the best of all, the joy of salvation and newness of life. And Lloyd-Jones, he just had a change of heart. Uh, regarding this. Of course, he still became a great blessing to his church because they would also ask him about their physical problems being a doctor and he would help them out there as he helped them with their spiritual issues. But here's the greatest need. It is forgiveness of sins. And it says that Jesus saw their faith. This is not just the paralytic's faith, but the friends, their faith as well. All five of these guys have faith in the person of Christ. They believe he can heal. This is the first use of faith in Luke's gospel. And Jesus sees their faith. How do you see faith? It's not, a, you know, something 
tangible in the sense of a material substance. Well, James says, uh, you see faith by works, right? So you can look at what these guys are doing and you go, these guys believe, these guys have faith. And that's the idea there. It shows us here as well that forgiveness comes through faith, through trust in Jesus. This man could do nothing to merit God's forgiveness. He is a living picture of human inability. And yet he has trust in Christ given to him by the Spirit of God. Just notice a few things about forgiveness from this passage. Jeffrey Kirkland observes five facets of forgiveness from this verse alone. All alliterated for us, so very good. He said, it's personal. He says, man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins, personal. It is promised. Your sins are forgiven. What a promise from the Lord. But it's pervasive as well. Your sins, plural. It's total, total forgiveness. It's also positional. The idea of this verb is it is something that is, has happened and continues to have results. You have been forgiven. You're in the state of forgiveness positionally. And it's perfect. It's a perfect forgiveness. Are you forgiven of your sins? Has your greatest need been met by the Lord? I don't know if you realize this yet, but this man's paralysis led him to Jesus. It kind of reminds you of the story of the blind man in John chapter 9. People are going, who sinned? This guy or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. But it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had in his mysterious providence ordained this man to be blind in order for that very moment for him to be able to glorify God through regeneration and renewed sight. Both a spiritual and a physical sight. Now, do you think this paralytic man thought it was worth it to have been paralyzed up until this moment in order to get to Jesus and have his sins forgiven? Dare I say... I think he did. I think he thought it was worth it to have his greatest need dealt with. Your greatest and least trials are meant to drive you closer to Jesus. His greatest need was sins being forgiven. And now they have been. Do you believe that's true for yourself, for others, that that is their greatest need? This man... I think he could have gone on even if the Lord didn't choose to heal him and been so joyful having his sins forgiven and having the assurance of it. Well, this is the pronouncement, the proclamation of divine forgiveness. And the camera now shifts from this man to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it's here we now see the prerogative of divine forgiveness the prerogative of divine forgiveness. Verses 21 to 24. Pick it up in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the next verse tells us that this was not an audible statement. They were thinking this in their hearts. This is what's going on. This is how they're reasoning to themselves. For the most part, they have good theology. They recognize that only God can forgive sins. Right? Like if you have a conflict with another person and there's been sin against one another and a third party walks in and says, hey, hey, it's okay. It's okay. I forgive you guys. (laughs) You're going to go, what? What are you talking about? You have nothing to do with this. You haven't been sinned against. And we understand that, that the one who's been sinned against is the one who can grant forgiveness. We understand that on a human level. But how much more when all sin has been committed against God? That David says, against you, you only have I sinned. In Psalm 51, verse 4. Although he had sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, 
the nation of Israel. I mean, so many other people. But he saw the core of his sin was against God. And we see that in a number of other biblical characters as well, as they see sin is ultimately against God. And so the one who's been sinned against is the one who can grant forgiveness. And so they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And so they know this. Okay, premise one, only God can forgive sins. Premise two, someone who claims to do something only God can do is blaspheming. Premise three, (laughs) Jesus is claiming to forgive sins. Conclusion, Jesus is blaspheming and deserving of death according to the Mosaic law. Now, they have some right premises, but a wrong conclusion because they fail to recognize that Jesus is God. That this man standing before them is the eternal son who's taken on humanity. They are wrong about Jesus. They got his identity wrong. So look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, another indication of the spirit of God at work in him, indicating his divinity as well, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Now, that would be shocking. If, if you start thinking something, you're in a crowd, and you start kind of like observing stuff, and you, you start having some thoughts that you're just between you and God, and all of a sudden, someone comes up and says, why are you thinking that? And you're like, what? Uh, don't just tell them. <laughs> Make them prove it. And they say, hey, this. And you're going, how could they possibly know that? He read their mail without opening it. He has perception into their hearts. J.C. Rouse says, they may deceive man, but they are not deceiving Christ. And Jesus discerns the thoughts of the heart. 1 Corinthians 2.11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Here we see highlighted for us something very crucial in this text. The question of who has the right to forgive sins? Who has the prerogative to forgive sins? Who has the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus is going to prove it to them because he knows that's that's what they are thinking. So look at verse 23. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? Now, these two things are both things that only God could do or empower someone to do in, this, in the example of healing. But the issue is not so much here, which is harder to do, but which is easier to say. That's the focus. From a human perspective, it is easier to say to someone in a crowd, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because how do you prove that? It's almost non-falsifiable, Right? How how can you say it not? False religions all the time say to people, your sins are forgiven. You only find out after you've died and you're in hell that they were wrong. But if you say something in in a group of people with a paralytic lying before you, rise up and walk and leave, go home, you're going to find out very quickly whether that person is the real deal. And so that is the issue that Jesus brings up. He goes all in. I mean, he's, he's like, all right, let's, let's do this. Now, like I said, if we're talking about it in a different sense, well, both of them are acts of God, but, but to heal a person is a creative act. To forgive a person is harder than creation. I mean, because God brings something into existence out of nothing, but 
to heal someone of forgiveness, God cannot just wave a wand and forgive someone without a basis because it would violate his justice. And so Christ is going to accomplish that which will allow God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And so it is difficult to give forgiveness because Christ has to suffer on the cross as a substitute for sinners and to bear the wrath of God for those sins. We also, we, not only do we say that, uh, observe that those who, the one who's been sinned against is the one who can forgive, but depending on who you sin against and the value of that person is going to determine the severity of your punishment. So you sin against another human being, there's a level of punishment that'll be brought. We even understand this somewhat, like if you sin against a, a, a political official versus a, a, a citizen, like if you, if you were to do something against a, a, the president versus just a, a regular citizen not holding office, there would be probably higher consequences because of that. We understand the position, right? We understand that with God as well, that he is the infinite creator. And so when you sin against him, the reason the penalty is so great for even one sin is because the value of the person you've sinned against is infinite. And so that's the reason there is such a debt. And so, yes, if we're talking about difficulty, far more difficult for forgiveness. But the issue is, which is easier to simply say. And Jesus can do both. But he's trying to teach them a lesson. And so, Jesus is saying, it's easier to say to a person that their sins are forgiven, but certainly more difficult to say to a paralytic man in front of a crowded house, rise and walk. And so look at verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. They're stumbling over his identity. And so he wants to confirm who he is. He wants them to know that he is the son of man and the son of man has authority. Now here is Luke's first usage of the title son of man. This is a favorite of Jesus's. I think it is his most frequently used phrase of himself, son of man. And you might think, oh, okay, son of man is probably speaking about his humanity. And that would be correct, but not to the exclusion of his deity. Because the, where this, this phrase, son of man, gets all of its theological baggage from is Daniel chapter 7. And there you have the son of man is a figure who has a bunch of uh, creatures around him representing authorities. Uh, it sounds like Adam. And uh, he's going to rule over those. And so he's like a second Adam figure. Uh, not only that, but he approaches the Ancient of Days, who is God. And simply to be able to do that would indicate that this one is God. And then he's given the authority that only God possesses. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar came to realize that only God possesses this kind of authority. And yet here's the Ancient of Days granting this authority to the Son of Man. In verse 13 of Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Sounds like authority, right? Who has authority to forgive sins? And it says that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so here he says that you may know that the son of man, who is the son of man? The one with all authority, the God man with all authority, that you may know that he has authority to forgive sins. Let me show you. And he speaks these words. He commands this man to get up and leave. A man who has no physical ability to walk. This is like unto him speaking to Lazarus who's dead. No ability in himself. And yet as he speaks, his words not only command, but grant that which is commanded. And so life begins to pour into this man and, and he's healed. And he gets up as he hears the command. He simultaneously has the strength to obey it. And he stands up. What a sight. I mean, what a day. I mean, you're listening. It's excitement. Get to Jesus. Then, you know, a little knock on the, on the roof. And then this guy's getting lowered down. Jesus is like, you're forgiven. You're like, what? And, and then 
he starts to dialogue with the Pharisees and you're like, what are they talking about? Because <laughs> you're like, yeah, I didn't hear the Pharisees say anything. And he's, he's addressing them. And then the guy stands up and everyone knows this guy's been a paralytic. And he just walks out. Here we see finally the praise for divine forgiveness. The praise for divine forgiveness. Verses 25 and 26. Look at verse 25. And immediately he rose up. He rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. I mean, he gets up, he picks up his, his mat like a surfer, picks up his surfboard, and he's just out of there. Immediate healing followed by immediate obedience to the word of Christ. What a great picture. What happens when your sins are forgiven? You obey Christ. You glorify God. And you keep walking in the works that God has ordained for you. This man begins to glorify God. This is what happens when he forgives you of your sins. He causes you to begin a life lived for the glory of God. He starts to praise. Don't you want to praise God for the forgiveness of your sins? Oh God, so good. We're reminded week in and week out, the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the word we hear of the great forgiveness that we have. He who's been forgiven little, loves little. He who's been forgiven much, loves much. Not only this man, though, but others are greatly impacted as well. We don't know their spiritual condition. We know the outward statements that they're making and their amazement and what's going on. Time will tell. Look at verse 26. And amazement seized them all. They're gripped by this. They glorified God. And we're filled with awe. It's like filled with fear saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Some translation, older translations say strange things today. We have seen extraordinary things. People are amazed. They're glorifying God. They're fearful of what they've seen. What a blessing to have sins forgiven. Praise God for divine forgiveness. Thomas Watson wrote, He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, Sin shall not be cast in like a cork, which rises up again, but like lead, which sinks to the bottom. And then he says later, the pardoned soul is out of the gunshot of hell. If you're here today and your sins are forgiven, praise God. How amazing. Or let me direct you back to our call to worship. Psalm 103. Maybe you'll hear it a little differently now. Psalm 103, 2 to 3. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. That probably had some new new meaning for this man that day. Here's a thought. What do you think that guy did with his mat? After he left. Do you think he trashed it? You think he just threw it away? I don't know. We don't, we're speculating at this point. We're in dangerous territory. (laughs) I don't know, but I think he kept it. Why? Because that mat was the raft that led him to Jesus. I think that emblem of his greatest trial became one of his greatest treasures. Because it was the means by which he was brought to Christ. Listen again to Johnny Erickson Tata. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, Thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble. Because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened 
had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And she says elsewhere, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for a great, great story revealing your great compassion, your great kindness, your great willingness to forgive sinners. And wonder of wonders, the authority to do so. Lord, what great encouragement that you can deal with our greatest need, and you do, that you would highlight it for us, that while the world might tell us and we might think ourselves of many other issues are more pressing, you reveal to us the greatest need, forgiveness. And Lord, many, if not the majority here, sit here with forgiveness of sins. And we are so grateful, Lord. We return praise to you. And Lord, as we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper now, it is a great reminder, a great emblem of this forgiveness we've received. And so, Lord, may it just have special significance for us this morning as we've just contemplated the divine forgiveness that we are the recipients of. Pure grace to us. Lord, we don't deserve this. And Lord, we know that you are continually at work in us and we need to seek your forgiveness for sins committed. And yet we know that positionally all our sins have been dealt with. And yet we want to practically maintain a a close fellowship with you. And so we confess our sins regularly. We thank you for the basis of that being the work of Christ, that perfect work. Thank you for models, examples of others who have suffered greatly, many far more than we ever will to show us from the other side of that suffering that it is totally worth it, to give us more testimonies that Christ is better than all. Lord, you draw all kinds of people to yourself. Your captivating person, your authoritative words. And Lord, we thank you again to worship together, to glory and rejoice in our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.